Well, let's turn to James chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. You want to have your Bible open? We don't have the scriptures on the screen today, so you're going to have it in front of you. But to introduce this passage, I want you to think about the fact that Jesus did not teach that following him would mean a life that's free from trials or from suffering. It's not what he taught. And quite the contrary. He taught that following him, following Jesus, means entering into a battle. It means enlisting in a war. It's a spiritual war. Use spiritual weapons of prayer and love and tears and words and serving. But it's a war nonetheless. It's a war to set men and women free from Satan's captivity. It's a war to fight against sin and Satan so that lost people can be saved, brought into the forgiveness of knowing Jesus Christ and the joy of knowing God as their father. But it's war. We are fighting Satan and the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And because it's war, it means cost. It means suffering. It means trials. And so following Jesus will mean suffering and trials. Jesus was very honestly clear about that. Following Jesus can mean persecution. It can mean sickness. It can mean heartbreak. It can mean loss. Many of you know far more than I do by experience that that's the truth. That's what following Jesus can mean. Now, Jesus does promise that he is sovereign over our trials. He is always in control. He promises that he will comfort us in our trials and strengthen us in our trials and that no trial will be wasted. Every trial has a place in his cosmic, global, glorious purpose and every trial will bring you more joy in him forever. So he gives us massive promises about the trials that we face. But still, we will have trials. And in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, James says, not just that we're going to have trials, but he calls us to be patient during these trials. Be patient during trials. So those of you who are in the thick of trials right now, are you being patient How's your patience? Difficulties at work, difficulties with your children, maybe pain in your marriage, some financial pressures, some health issues, persecution. How's your, how's your patience in your trials? Those who've been through trials recently, how was your patience? If you have trials come up this week, how will your patience be? All of us, me, all of us, I think would say, working on it. Need some help, okay? And that's why the Holy Spirit had James write James chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 to give us help so we can be patient. So let's look at what James says. I want to have this first question be, what were James' readers facing? What were James' readers facing? And the first six verses of this passage are interesting because James starts off calling down God's judgment upon rich people who are oppressing the poor. And you could think, were James readers? Rich people oppressing the poor? And we'll see in verse 7 that the answer to that is no. 
It's James' readers who are the poor being oppressed by the rich. So with that in mind, look at verses 1 through 6. Verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. See, he's calling down God's judgment. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And if the Lord of armies hears your cry, those who've oppressed you better watch out. That's what he means. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. See, it's kind of puzzling to read those first six verses because like I said, it sounds like Maybe James' readers are the rich. But when you read verse 7, you'll see that that's not the case. Look at verse 7. James says, be patient. He certainly isn't telling the rich people to be patient. He wants them to repent. He's telling his readers to be patient. They're the poor that are being oppressed by the rich. So he says, be patient, therefore. Therefore, because of what? Because God will judge those who are oppressing you. So poor readers of mine, James says, be patient. Therefore, brothers, you're not the rich. You're my brothers, brothers and sisters, believers. So he says, be patient. Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So it's not James readers who are the rich oppressing the poor. It's James readers who are the poor being oppressed by the rich. Does that make sense? Remember the background of this letter. James probably, we aren't entirely sure, but probably he wrote this letter to some believers who had left, fled his church in Jerusalem, and they'd gone north to avoid persecution. So they're up in Palestine and northern Syria as refugees. And many of them are very poor, struggling financially. No money, no food. But where they were living, there were some fields, some farmland, and wealthy people owned that farmland, and the wealthy people hired them to work the fields. So imagine, there you are, one of James' readers. You go out and you're working long days. You're working hard work in the hot sun. Come home at night and say, kids, there's going to be money at the end of the week. There's going to be food. Hang on. You go back to work the next day, back to work the next day. End of the week comes. Owner rides up in his fancy chariot with his fancy robes and says, you know, I'm so sorry. I, I shot all my extra money last night at this fancy dinner. Um, I'll see if I can get some money for you guys next week. Have a good weekend. And he rides off. And can you feel how unjust, terribly unjust and wicked that would be? That's why in James 1, verses 1 through 6, James 5, 1 through 6, he calls these rich people to weep and to howl because of how they are with no feeling, with no compassion, oppressing the poor people in their midst. So the reason James mentions that is because his readers are the poor. Now, 
Many of us, though, we are rich compared to other people in this country. This country has great disparities in terms of what people are paid for work, right? Huge differences here. And this country is full of thousands of laborers, okay? And we want Grace Church to be a church where the glory of Jesus Christ melts those class distinctions so that a corporate executive would be gladly prayed for by a construction worker because they are brothers at the foot of the cross and the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's the kind of church we want to have here where we let the glory of Christ dissolve class distinctions. So watch your heart. Let's all watch our hearts to make sure that the distinctions that are in the culture around us don't affect the way we see people from either side. And I've loved hearing stories of how we have been caring for and reaching out to some of those who are more poor and needy. Um, Kashif, Danielle, are involved in ministering to workers at the labor camps, taking the gospel to them regularly. Others of you are involved in that as well. Kashif's ultimate vision is to plant a Hindi-Urdu-speaking church amongst laborers. That, that may be our, one of our first church plants. Very excited about that. So many of you are involved in that, love how that's going on. I've loved hearing reports of many of you inviting uh, laborers over to your home for dinner and enjoying fellowship with them. That's beautiful. Uh, Zach and Michelle's home group, the um, Officers Club, Sheikh Zayed Grand Mosque area home group. There was a laborer in their home group, part of their home group who had a terrible family emergency and their home group raised funds to fly him back. Uh, so that he could be there for his family emergency. I've loved stories like that. Jesus loves stories like that. Let's, let's give him lots of stories like that to celebrate. All right? So that, that's one implication of verses 1 through 6. But the main point that Jesus is making in this passage is to talk to his readers who are the poor, being oppressed by the rich, and he's calling them, be patient. Be patient. You can see that in verse 7. What does James urge his readers to do? Look at verse 7 again. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Patience means what? It means feeling peaceful and content when you're going through suffering and trials and loss and difficulty. Easy to be peaceful and content when things are fine and comfortable. Hard to feel peaceful and content when you're involved in suffering and trials. It's hard to be patient, for example, if you are persecuted unjustly at work, persecuted for your faith at work. It's hard to be patient in that situation. Or if you're struggling in your marriage and there's just a lot of pain there <clears throat> and a lot of barriers have been built. I can, it's hard to be patient. Hard to be patient if you maybe do it like migraine headaches how to be patient with that excruciating pain, right? So it's, it's hard to be patient when we go through trials. So how can we be patient when we're going through trials? The answer is in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. It's all about the coming of the Lord. The way to get patient is to stop and think about the coming of the Lord. What is the coming of the Lord referring to? It's talking about the second coming. 
The first coming of Jesus took place 2,000 years ago. Jesus came lowly, servant, walked the road to Calvary to the cross, suffered excruciating, horrifying punishment in our place for our sins on the cross, rose from the dead, victorious over sin and Satan and death, and then ascended into heaven. That was his first coming. And then the second coming will happen at the end of history when Jesus returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he will destroy Satan and all of his demons. He will gather the elect, gather his people to himself. He will cast those who have continued in rebellion and unbelief against him into hell. And we will enjoy fellowship with all the saints from every nation, tongue, and tribe, worshiping Christ forever. That's the second coming. Jesus is going to come at the end of history. And James would say, if you're going through any trial right now, Right, that the path of following Jesus is full of trials. So any trial, big trial, small trial, medium-sized trial, any trial, the way to be patient as you endure that trial is to think about the fact that Jesus is going to return. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now, one question that raised in my mind as I was studying this is, does that mean we do nothing about our trials until Jesus comes back? Do we just do nothing? And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. For example, when Peter was in prison, the church got together, had a special prayer meeting, and prayed for his deliverance. And in the book of Acts, he was miraculously delivered. When the church in Jerusalem was going to face a famine, the church didn't just say, we're going to wait until the coming of the Lord. They collected money to give to them, to care for them, so they'd have food during the famine. When you get sick, we pray for healing. We go to doctors. So the Bible doesn't say we are passive, and yet the way we get patient is by focusing on the coming of the Lord. There are steps, though, that God does want us to take, which he will often use to deliver us from trial. So then why does James say be patient until the coming of the Lord? So here's what I think is in James' mind. The reason he says be patient until the coming of the Lord is because sometimes God, even though there are steps that we might take to be delivered from the trial, sometimes God chooses not to deliver us from that trial, right? Sometimes in his love, in his mercy, in his bringing you great blessing, he does that by having the trial remain, by having the trial stay. And so the reason James says what's going to give you patience is focusing on the second coming is because that's when all the trials will be gone. If you in this life put your hope in being delivered from some particular trial, it may not, deliverance may not be coming for that particular trial. And if you put your hope in deliverance for that trial, you may be disappointed Pray for deliverance, work for deliverance, collect money for the church in Jerusalem, pray for Peter to get released from prison, but you put your hope not in his deliverance, not in people escaping famine, not in healing, not in whatever. You put your hope in the second coming when all of those trials will be gone. Does that make sense? Now, I, if you're like me, this just really struck me. I thought, you know, I most of the time put my hope in getting delivered from this trial. Now, in this life, most of my hope has not been in the second coming. 
but I would be more patient if it was. I wouldn't be disappointed as often. I wouldn't be worried as often. So does the distinction make sense? We can ask God to deliver us from trials and take steps to be delivered from trials, but our hope should not be in deliverance from those trials. Our hope is in the second coming, which will deliver us from all the trials. Does that make sense? Grace Church, if we will live this way, we will be oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord with deep roots and thick trunks and the storms can come and we will stand. If persecution comes here, we will stand. If sickness comes, we will stand. If difficulties in our families come, we will stand. Christ will be glorified. People will be saved. The church will be built if we put our hope in the second coming. So we work for deliverance here. We pray for deliverance here, but we hope for deliverance in the second coming. Because in his love, God may choose not to grant deliverance here. Sometimes he does. We celebrate that. Sometimes he doesn't. We trust him for that. Does that make sense? So the, the main point of this passage is to be patient by setting our hearts on the coming of the Lord. Now, how does the coming of the Lord help us be patient? James gives us five ways. In this passage, let me just walk through them. Five ways. The first way is because Jesus' coming brings the precious fruit you long for. That's the second half of verse 7. Let's read all of verse 7 to see that. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. So when a farmer sows his seed, he's patient then about it. He's patient, right? Seeds, his seeds are gone. He has no more seeds, but he's patient. Why? Because he knows the crop is coming. Lettuce is coming. Tomatoes are coming. Corn is coming. So he's patient because he knows the rich harvest is coming. Precious fruit is coming. And the same is true with us. The reason we can be patient is because we know that Jesus coming at the end of history is going to bring us the precious fruit that we long for. He will come and he'll bring us the precious fruit. So we don't put our hope in fruit in this life. God can give us tastes of fruit in this life. He will give us tastes of kingdom fruit in his life. He'll give us tastes of healing. He'll give us tastes of outpourings of his Holy Spirit. He'll give us tastes of his love and his presence. He'll give us tastes of the fruit in this life. But the harvest of precious fruit awaits the second coming, when every trial will be gone. We won't receive the whole harvest of precious fruit until Jesus comes back. Because when he comes back, he will put a stop to every trial and you will never face a trial again. You will never suffer again. He will wipe every tear from your eyes, and you will never weep again. And he will fill us with the joy of knowing him and worshiping him with all the redeemed from every nation, tongue, and tribe forever. So be patient, first reason, because Jesus coming will bring the precious fruit you long for. That trial's not going to go on forever. Loss will not be forever. Precious harvest, precious fruit is coming when every trial will be gone. Second reason, because today's patience increases tomorrow's joys. 
Last line of verse 7, James says, The farmer is patient about the harvest until it receives the early and late rains. So the farmer knows that seed he's planted, it needs rain, so he's just patient because you've got to have rain before you get harvest. So he's, he's patiently waiting because he knows his patient waiting is going to increase the harvest. If you dug the seed up now, no harvest. So put it back down, be patient, okay? Because you know that the patient waiting is going to bring the harvest. He'll receive more precious fruit tomorrow because he's waiting patiently today. And the same is true with us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is a very important passage, verses 16 through 18, Paul says that today's trials produce, produce eternal glory for us as we Patiently wait with faith in Christ. Today's trials produce eternal glory for us. And that's why we can be patient during times of loss and times of suffering. Because loss will not be forever. Trials don't mean we're going to have less joy in the future. Patiently trusting Christ through trials will produce for us more joy in the future. So be patient because today's patience will produce, will increase tomorrow's joys. Third reason, because the Lord's return is at hand. That's verse 8. You also be patient, establish your hearts, strengthen your hearts. Here's why. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. See, when you go through suffering, or when you go through trials, if you're anything like me, you can be filled with doubts and uh, fears, right? You can ask yourself the question, is God really in control? Is this trial really, does it really have any meaning? Does it really have any purpose, or is it just senseless loss and pain for me? Will Jesus really come again, or am I just like living a pipe dream? Is this really going to happen? And it's hard to be patient when you're full of fears and doubts. So what does James call us to do? He says, establish your hearts. Right there in verse 8, establish your hearts by understanding that the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, what does that mean? I think it's the picture that James gives us, end of verse 9. Notice end of verse 9, he says, the judge, speaking of Jesus, is standing at the door. So Jesus is in heaven, and he's standing at the door. It's like he has his hand on the doorknob. And, and what that picture means is that Jesus has done everything necessary in order for him to return, conquer sin, conquer Satan, conquer death, gather his redeemed, judge the wicked. Everything has been done. Jesus died on the cross, paying for our sins, breaking the power of death, power of Satan, rose again, ascended into heaven. It's all been done. So now Jesus is there with his hand on the door, just waiting for the Father to say, Son, go. So he's waiting. Jesus is there. Father, Father, Father says, we're going to save some more first. We're going to save some more first. Just wait. Okay. Glory to you, Father. Yes. Father now, okay? And the moment the Father says, go, the Lion of Judah bursts onto the earth. The skies tear open. He comes. Everyone knows from east to west, Jesus Christ, God the Lord is here. The righteous will be redeemed and rejoicing. Satan will be crushed and cast into hell with his demons. 
Those who have continued in rebellion will be cast into hell with him, will be gathered to be with him. But Jesus is there right now. He's just waiting. It's all been done. It's just a matter of time. You see the picture? Father, is it today? It could be in the next five minutes, church. It could be. Or 100 years from now. God knows. But it's absolutely certain the coming of the Lord is at hand. So as you're going through cancer, or as you're going through losing a job promotion because they know you're a believer, or as you're in a loveless marriage, the coming of the Lord is certain. God is in control. This trial does have meaning and purpose. Jesus really will come again, and he will reward my suffering with joy in him forever. So be patient, my soul. Be patient. Jesus is coming again. You feel that? Mm. Do you do that? Not enough for me. Do you feel, though, oaks of righteousness? Feel it coming? Oakness coming to us? Ooh. Okay, fourth. This is a little different twist now. It's because Jesus is going to judge grumbling. Verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Here's what I think James is saying. When trials come, we can be tempted to grumble. Instead of being patient, we can grumble. Grumble against people who we think are causing the trial, circumstances that we think are causing the trial, right? We're grumblers by nature because we're sinful. But see, it's not people or circumstances who ultimately control our trials. It's God who ultimately controls our trials. And so when we grumble against people or grumble against circumstances, who are we grumbling against? God. Exodus 16, 8, Moses said, your grumbling is not against us. It's against the Lord. That's why we must not grumble. Because it's, it's God who, at least for this moment, has handed you this trial as a gift, a way to display his glory, a way to gain more joy in him. He may deliver you from it in the next five minutes, but at least for these five minutes, it's a gift. And so if you grumble against the people or the circumstances, you're grumbling against God, and that's wrong. Instead, we need to bend our knee before God and say, yes, Lord, I'm going to pray that you'll take this away. But for now, yes, Lord. Okay, so I would guess we've all grumbled about trials ourselves, to other people. Here's the good news. If you've trumbled, if you've, if you've grumbled, Jesus Christ will completely forgive you. If you will bend the knee and confess your grumbling as sin and say, I'm sorry, and would you help me to be patient? Help me to see your return more clearly. Set my heart upon you more strongly. Please forgive me. He will completely forgive you for your grumbling, and he will help you be patient instead of grumbling. That's the fourth reason to be patient, because Jesus will judge grumbling. And James, I think, wants us to tremble a bit about that one. Fifth reason. It's because those who suffer patiently will be delivered when Jesus returns. Verses 10 through 11. As an example of suffering and patience. Okay, James, give us some examples. 
Okay, I'll give you examples, James says. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Think about Isaiah. Think about Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah. Behold, verse 11, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast in their suffering. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So remember the story of Job? He's the one prophet James points out here. God allowed terrible trials to come to Job, lost his servants, lost all of his wealth, lost all of his children, and then lost his health in a horrifyingly painful way. But see, Job was steadfast. He's an example of steadfastness and patience. Remember what he did? He tore his robes, sign of sorrow. He shaved his head as a sign of anguish. Job says, the book says, he fell down into the ground and he worshiped. And he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Steadfast, patient, worship. And what did God do? God showed him compassion and mercy. He restored his health, gave him more children, restored his wealth. God was compassionate and merciful. And James wants us to understand that all those who suffer patiently, everyone who suffers patiently trusting Christ, will be delivered because of God's mercy and compassion. All those who suffer patiently will be delivered when Jesus returns. Now, like I said, Jesus might deliver you from that trial in this life now. He might do that, but he might not, which is why patience comes from focusing on the second coming. Because at the second coming, those who wait patiently for Christ's sake will certainly be delivered from every trial because God is merciful and because God is compassionate. So what this means is that the trials and the suffering that we have in this life, that is not your destiny forever. You will have an eternity with Christ and his people free from trials. That's where you put your hope. Hope there. Okay, what does this mean for us? Again, what I said earlier, what struck me from this passage, what the Holy Spirit was convicting me of is that I do not have as much hope in the second coming as I should. Too much of my hope is in things in this life. And so I'm up and down. I can be disappointed, discouraged. Again, we keep praying for deliverance in this life. We work towards God to work in this life, right? We're not passive, but our hope isn't there. Our hope is in him. That's what James is telling us to do here. So if I'm going to be patient in trials... And if we, Grace Church, are going to be a church that is patient for Christ's glory in our trials, we need to put our hope in the Lord's coming. So take whatever trial you're facing right now, and let's, let's just try to do this. Let me walk you through this together. Let's say you have some health problems, okay? Having a hard time being patient. Health problems. James would say, set your heart on the coming of the Lord. Pray for healing. Pray for healing more. Go to the doctor. Do whatever you can do. But set your heart on his return. 
Spend time thinking, Jesus, you will come back and I will be healed forever. No more sickness, no more death. And my patient suffering through this time will glorify Jesus forever. Somehow that'll be displaying his glory that you, Jesus was enough for you through that time of suffering with sickness. And think about how that suffering is going to bring you more joy in him forever and the joy you will have when he wipes every tear from your eyes. Think of that moment, Jesus Christ wiping every tear from your eyes and how there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more death at that moment. So if you're dealing with health medical issues, set your heart on the certainty of the deliverance of the second coming of Jesus Christ. It'll fill you with patience. Maybe you have relationship problems. Maybe you've got a problem with somebody at work. It's very painful difficulty. Maybe it's parenting issues with a son or a daughter who's just really causing difficulty in your life. Maybe it's, it's, a, it's a marriage, which is just almost not even a marriage anymore. How do you be patient? Set your hope on the coming of Christ. Think about how he is coming back and he will reward your patience, your forgiveness, your love towards this person, your gentleness and grace towards this person. Jesus Christ will come back and he will reward you for your faithfulness, your patience, your love, your forgiveness. And when you see him, when you see Jesus Christ, I promise you, it will all be worth it. He will be worth it all. So let that give you patience now. Maybe you're battling spiritual struggles, like battling a temptation. It's like you just keep getting tempted. Lord, deliver me from this. Or maybe it's something like discouragement or panic attacks or something. You're, you're, you're just battling in these areas. How do you be patient in the midst of that battle? Set your heart on the coming of the Lord. That's how. Be patient and keep fighting. Keep fighting patiently because Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, all the prayer, all the labor, all the fight of faith, all the energy, all the effort will be worth it when you hear him say to you, he's going to look you right in the eyes, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And you will be so happy that you fought and that you were patient and that you endured when you hear him say that to you. So let that give you patience as we're, we're all battling sin in this room. No one here is like, well, I fought sin up until a few years ago and now it's just like easy street. It's not how it works. We are all fighting sin tooth and nail. Truth be told, right? <clears throat> right? Yes. We are. You are not alone. We're family here keep fighting. He's going to make it all worth it. One more example, facing persecution. You may have friends, neighbors, work associates, make fun of you, shun you. You may be on a missions trip somewhere someday where you're arrested and put in prison. This could happen. It could happen here. We pray it not. Anything could happen. Read church history. Read the Bible, right? So how do you be patient if you, if you suffer persecution? You set your heart on the coming of the Lord. 
That's what James would tell us to do. When Jesus returns, all persecution will be over. Never again. Never again. All suffering will be over. Everyone will see you were right to follow Jesus. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And you will, I promise you, you will fall on your face and you will thank him for the privilege of suffering for his name. You will thank him. You will thank him, thank him, thank him for the honor of suffering for his name. So let that truth give you patience now. See how that works? Second coming. That's where patience comes. Now, one more question though. What if you're here this morning and the thought of Jesus' second coming frightens you? Because you're not ready. You know you're not ready. You're not trusting Jesus. You're embracing known sin without confessing it, without battling it. You're just loving it. You're, you're holding to sin. You're clinging to sin, not to Jesus. What if you're frightened by his return? My answer would be that you're absolutely right to be frightened. You should probably be more frightened than you are. And I want to say that with love. But it's true. But here's the good news. Bend the knee before Jesus right now. Come to him as you are with, with your, your, your love for that money or that lust or whatever it might be. Say, Jesus, I love money. I love lust. I want to be set free. Help me. You bend your knee before him. He will forgive you and he will change you by his power. And you'll be saved. You won't become perfect, but you'll be changed. And you'll be changed more a week from now and more a month from now and more a year from now. You'll be changed, you'll be saved, and you will not need to have any fear about Jesus' return. Today needs to be the day when you turn back to Jesus Christ or when you turn to Christ, maybe for the first time. Let it be the day. Let's stand together. Let's have the worship team come on up. Let me pray this over us. Father, I ask that you would do your work in our hearts by your word this morning. I can't do it. No one else here can do it. Only you can do it. And you love to work through your word for the glory of your holy son, Jesus. So I pray that Grace Church would be a church where we have our hearts set on the second coming more than ever before because of James chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And I pray that men and women here, young people here, would put their trust in Jesus Christ if they haven't, if they aren't. Right now, they would bend the knee and trust Jesus as Savior and Lord and be saved. I pray this in Jesus' name. Let's worship. Let's worship.